Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. We come now to the third Sunday of Advent, Gaudete Sunday, Gaudete, Latin for joy for rejoice, right? And this is the Sunday where priests have to be very secure in their masculinity. As everyone comments, that color looks really good on you, Father. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So look, I don't remember, I don't remember what masses I had this weekend, but I, last weekend in my homily, I reflected on the fact that it's significant that Holy Mother Church, that she gives us two out of the four Sundays of Advent to reflect on the person of John the Baptist. Right, last Sunday and this Sunday, we're honing in on this person, John the Baptist. Now, why? From the Catechism, paragraph 524, that's what the church teaches. When the church celebrates the liturgy of Advent each year, she makes present this ancient expectancy of the Messiah. For by sharing in the long preparation for the Savior's first coming, the faithful renew their ardent desire for his second coming. And by celebrating John the Baptist's birth and martyrdom, the church unites herself to his desire that he must increase and I must decrease. It's a paragraph from the Catechism 524. Last week, I also shared a bit about how contemporary biblical archaeology has kind of pieced together some interesting clues about who John the Baptist was with those discoveries of the Dead Sea Scrolls. We're able to piece together a little bit more about who he was. Right, of course, so in the time of Jesus, we're familiar with two of the three major sects of Judaism at the time. We're all familiar with the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they appear in the scriptures. But there was a third set of Jews at the time of Jesus known as the Essenes. They were a group of monastics, Jewish celibate men who went out into the wilderness, into the desert to prepare an intense way spiritually for the coming of the Messiah, for the coming of the one who would fulfill all of Israel's prophecies. They rejected the temple, they saw it as defiled, so they go, we are going out into the wilderness to prepare ourselves as the new temple. So with this biblical archaeological discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, what we piece together is that John was probably part of this Essene community, and he was probably excommunicated from the monastery. He's kicked out of the monastery, which I love that detail. Just makes me feel good about myself. I just like that John was booted from the monastery. That's just fun. That's just fun. I just like that. Okay. So here's the question. Here's the question. The Essenes in particular, all the Jews in general, at the time of John the Baptist, the coming of the Lord, what, like, why were they waiting? Like, we should ask it this way. Like, why do they even have the expectation in the first place that he would come? Like, that's an audacious thing to think, that God himself would come. Why did they think that he would come? Quite simply, the short answer is because he said he would. Because he said he would. Like, I know that doesn't land with us with the same kind of gravitas. You know, we're American Christians sitting here in 2022 in little comfortable Wadsworth, Ohio. But that notion that God would come simply because he said he would, like, that meant everything to the Israelites. That was at the heart of their sense of who God was. They were so keenly aware that they worshiped a God. And they followed a God who did things for them. Like their whole identity was based on, we have a God who acts on our behalf, a God who delivers his people, a God who made and kept promises, a God who spoke 
and who spoke through chosen instruments called the prophets, and he made promises, and there were prophecies about what was going to happen. Like, when he came among us, what would happen? Like, right here, this is the first note for us to reflect on tonight, on this third Sunday of Advent. Like, what is our view of God? <laughs> like, have we, have we locked God into this sort of theoretical distance that he's so far away that he's just not active, that he's just not a present powerful force doing anything that we, like, yeah, we come here, we do mass, but like, I mean, I don't really expect God to show up. I don't really expect God to intervene. I don't really expect God to do much. But he's still worthy of my worship, you know? Is that our view of God? Because that is just not the biblical view. It's a terrifyingly dynamic view of God. Like for John the Baptist, especially for John, as this exiled Essene monk, God didn't just simply exist. He was... He was on the move. He was like Aslan from C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, who's the Christ figure in those stories. He's always, Aslan is on the move, about a new thing, doing something new, breaking in. So this is what John was doing out in the wilderness, preparing the people, preparing in the desert, preparing for the God who said he would come. So John gets arrested, and he's sitting in prison. He's awaiting his execution. His prophetic ministry has now come to an end, and he starts hearing whispers of the deeds that are being accomplished by this Yeshua, his second cousin, the Christ. And he's hearing incredible stories. And if you're John, if your whole life has been like singularly focused on preparing for the one who is going to break into creation, if your life has been singularly focused on reflecting on Isaiah and the signs of Isaiah and the prophecies, and you start hearing that things, incredible things are happening, you have one question that's just burning in your heart, and it's this. Are you the one who is to come? Literally in the Greek, it's, are you he who is to come? Now, that's a very odd, loaded, and mysterious question. Notice that John doesn't say, go ask Jesus if he's the Messiah. No, he says, are you he who is to come? It's an illusion. It's an illusion to all of those Old Testament scriptural prophecies about the coming one, about God coming into creation. How does Jesus respond to John's question, to the question of the disciples of John the Baptist? in a very classically Jesus-y response, right? They say, are you he who is to come? Notice Jesus doesn't say, yep, you got it. Like, he's just not clear like that. He's just, he just doesn't speak like that. It's like, yeah, man, yeah, yeah, you figured it out. You got me. No, no, that's not what he says. He says, go tell John what you see and what you hear. And he gives this list of criteria, a list of actions that should, that should tell John ostensibly and his disciples who he really is. He says the blind see and the lame walk and the deaf hear and lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news preached to them. He says, tell them that's what's happening. That's what's happening. And for Jesus, that should be enough in his mind. That should be enough to signify to John, to tell John an answer to the question. And then he adds that little caveat at the end. Blessed is he who doesn't take any offense 
at me. So here's the follow-up question. What is this list of actions and accomplishments, you know, deaf, hearing, blind, seeing, lame, walking, like, where does that come from? Like, it just seems like out of the blue, it's like this random list of, of miracles. Well, that list in particular is a direct reference to Isaiah 35, which just so happens to be our first reading tonight. What a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. In Isaiah 35, Isaiah is prophesying. Notice how we jump into the reading and we hear that the step will bloom, the desert will burst forth. The, the word will occurs so many times in that first reading. This will happen. This will happen. Well, when will that happen? That's the part of the lectionary that the bishops cut out. I don't know why. They didn't ask me. But the part that's excluded there is Isaiah saying, he's describing this revitalization of creation that creation bursting forth into beauty, all of this will happen, spontaneously will happen when God comes into creation. When God himself comes to dwell again, when this project of Edenizing creation all over again commences, right? The great catastrophe, the loss of paradise in the beginning, when that begins to get set right, when God returns... That's when this will happen. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf are opened. The lame shall leap. The mute man shall speak. And then Jesus adds these ones. He says, lepers are cleansed. The dead are raised. And the poor have the good news proclaimed to them. Well, if you look at Isaiah 35, lepers being cleansed, dead being raised, and the poor having good news proclaimed to them, that doesn't make it in the prophetic list of Isaiah 35. So why is he adding those in? Well, if you search the Old Testament... Remember the story of Naaman, the Syrian, the leper, who comes to the king of Israel begging for a cure of his leprosy. He comes to the king and the king responds to Naaman, like, who am I that you would come to me thinking that I could cleanse you of leprosy? He tears his garments, implying, of course, that only the God of Israel can cleanse leprosy. And here Jesus is saying, lepers are being cleansed. This whole business of the dead being raised and the poor having the good news proclaimed to them. Anyone want to guess? Do those show up in Isaiah? Yes. Isaiah 26 and Isaiah 61. These are the deeds of Yahweh himself. Raising the dead. Proclaiming the good news to the poor. This is what... Here's the point. Here's the rub. What the church is trying to invite us to experience on this third Sunday of Advent... The church is trying to shake us out of something we just take for granted. We're supposed to feel the utter incredulity, like the utter shock and astonishment, the incredible claim that God, the Lord, Yahweh himself, the God of the Old Testament, he did in fact robe himself in human flesh. He did in fact come among us. Like, we're supposed to feel John's shock sitting in that prison. Like, the astonishment of that question, are you the one who is to come? Just picture like a thousand question marks frantically at the end of that text message. Are you he who is to come? Or should we look for another? And the answer from Jesus, when we have this Old Testament background, is 
Yes. Yes. Friends, the grace we need to beg for tonight, the grace we need to beg for before the celebration of the Lord's nativity is the grace of like new wonder at this. This is, the, this is the grace, this is the gift that God comes in the flesh. This is the hinge of salvation. This is the center of the faith. The only moment in the creed when we bow our heads is that the declaration of the incarnation was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. This is the stunning wonder. How can it be that the God who put the rings around Saturn, who hung the stars in the sky, who dreamt of every atom, who holds every molecule in being from moment to moment, how can it be that the God that's so big that the heavens cannot even contain was contained in the womb of the virgin, that God was conceived, God grew in a womb, God was born, God travailed and was hungry and cold underneath the stars of his own creation. How can it be that God got hungry and tired, that he had to learn to walk and talk and pray. This is the invitation. As one author put it, he says this, speaking of this wonderment at the incarnation. The incarnation of the Logos, the Word, the second person of the Trinity, is the most astounding claim ever seriously made by humans. It's the most astounding claim ever seriously made by humans. There is no other religion whose beliefs come close to it, no other person in history who has ever claimed to be or has ever been revered as the fullness of the one transcendent creator God in human form. No news so riveting and momentous has ever come to the ears of humankind. If the claim is true, if God really did become a man and join himself forever to humanity, then it is by many orders of magnitude the most important thing that has ever happened. If it is true, then the incarnation becomes the interpretive key that unlocks the inner meaning of human history and reveals the purpose of every human life. You want to know what the answer to your life is, the mystery of your life? Look at the incarnation. But he says, if it is not true, if this is not true, then the Christian narrative, along with the whole of the Christian religious tradition, is a lie and a cheat and should be spurned as fanciful and dangerous nonsense. Friends, we need to like, wake up from the complacency of just thinking that, yeah, I, I got my head wrapped around this. You don't have your head wrapped around this. None of us have this, your head wrapped around this. I don't care if this is your fifth Christmas or your 85th Christmas. None of us have our heads wrapped around this. We should be stunned and filled anew with wonder and awe. This is why at the beginning of this Mass we prayed this, I prayed this collect, this prayer. Oh God, who see how your people faithfully await the feast of the Lord's nativity, enable us, we pray, like, we can't do this on our own. Give us the grace to do this. Enable us, we pray, to attain the joys of so great a salvation. Like, so great, so incredible, so unbelievable, so unforeseen, so unimaginable. Give us the grace to attain so great a salvation and to celebrate them always 
with solemn worship and glad rejoicing. Both of those coming together. So friends, may our joyful and may our reverent worship of our God in this Mass reflect the sublime, stunning truth that the one that John was waiting for has come. When John was standing by the shores of the Jordan, he pointed to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. You will hear those words in this Mass. Behold the Lamb of God. We can look at him. We can receive him. We can commune with him because he came. Because he said he would. And that's astounding. Amen.